Our reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So recently I've been watching a lot of videos on YouTube on chiropractors and just thinking about just watching them as they align the muscles. Often people go in with pain and they're just seeing their joints just cracked into place and just suddenly there's this kind of twisting and pulling and then a sudden crack and it goes back. And as we've been thinking about this and as we've been thinking about this passage, it's just reminded me of the fact that as we're going through 1 Peter, what we're actually trying to do here is align to what God's word is. And often it can be painful, it can be challenging, and even after a kind of a moment of um, release of tension, as it were, we're, we're ultimately living with, um, yeah, just the fallenness and the brokenness of the world. And we're seeing that in our, ourselves and in the body of Christ. And so as we're studying this book, um, th we're coming to a point really where we're actually looking to seek to live our new creation lives together. So what do our lives look like? The purpose of 1 Peter was really to try and remind them not only of the gospel um, on which and the identity in which we're living out, but also our lives in light of the gospel of what Jesus has done to accomplish this. And the beauty of it is that at THCC, we get to do that in a community um, that is so precious. We've got such a beautiful community of people that are just wrestling, that have this real hunger for God, a real love for God. And ultimately, we're all just trying to work this out together. I think as we come to our passage today, um, you know, as, as Ian and I were preparing it together, it was just there were so many parts of it that we were just challenged by, um, bits that we were just had loads of questions about. And I think, you know, often we come to this passage and it's talking about wives and husbands. And, and our, one of our first questions was, why is this passage relevant to everybody? Why is it not just for wives and husbands? I mean, we're in a life group where the majority of the people there are single. And ultimately, we are a family composed of married people, happily married, some not so happily married, um, children and single people. And single people is not just one category, as it were. Single people covers the, the vastness of those that are not yet married, those who want to be married, those are celibate singles, those are um, single from divorce, singles that are um, widowed, and some that are just happily single. 
Um, and it just reminded us of um, a couple of weeks ago when we were preaching on when I was preaching on um, the living stones. The fact is, we are living stones being built into a spiritual house. It's that reminder of the fact that we're doing this as a we and it's not as an individual. So as we're hearing this, we are a community of people really supporting each other and being supported by others. Our new creation lives means that we are not new creation as on our own. We are relational. We're, we relate to each other. And I think it is really important when we talk about this idea of marriage. I mean, it's really um, a bit of a mystery, really. But the Bible uses marriage as a picture of God's love for his church. How does he use human marriage as a reflection um, of, of this love for his church, the bride of Christ? And it evokes a committed love, a love for one another, a love that really unites us with one another. And in a world where we're, I mean, living, I, I found this statistic, it's like in this country, the divorce rate is 42%. And that's not just marriages out of the church. That's marriages that, you know, that includes marriages in the church too. 42%. I mean, ironically, that was found on um, a solicitor's website, a divorce solicitor's website anyway. But marriage is it's something that is is breaking down we're seeing that left right and center and so as christians the idea of marriage is, is something that should be highly held highly and and it is important and we should be those that want to see flourishing marriages so today you know we all have a role to play in this we we all have a role to see the whole community whole whole um, of God's people live out our lives in light of the gospel so as we come to um, really delve into this passage and wrestle with it together I think it's important we, you know when we see marriages we want to see them flourish and you know as they say like um, it takes a whole village to raise a child it takes a, a whole church to see good marriages flourish in our society too Today we're going to be talking about what true beauty, courage and strength looks like for both men and women. And we feel that that is relevant for every single person here today. So um, this passage is not an easy passage. It's quite a, a tricky passage. It's a passage that could be um, seen as something of a minefield. And we're going to try and navigate that today. Um, we're not going to shy away from the more difficult aspects of it and I hope we will um, give it a thorough treatment and uh, try and help to see some of these potential uh, landmines uh, for what they are and I guess right at the top um, this this passage talks about submission and uh, submission is a word that can be uh, very difficult in the current um, cultural contexts, particularly when it comes to talking about how uh, wives should submit to husbands or um, more generally how women should submit to men. Often this is a topic that is quite uncomfortable um, because it's seen as relating to um, the potential for violence um, perpetrated by men against women. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about um, this and, and the sort of seriousness of it. Um, I 
had uh, some pictures or some photos uh, to show as part of this talk. Obviously, you can't see the photos, um, so I'm going to describe them. So, um, the first photo was um, of uh, some of the, the flowers and messages that were left um, at the bandstand in, in Clapham Common after um, the abduction and, and murder of Sarah Everard roughly three years ago, almost exactly three years ago. And one of the messages there said uh, simply, when will women be safe? Um, the second picture was of one of the banners that was uh, carried at um, the protests um, following this um, evil crime. And it said, men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. Men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. I just think this is... Uh, a, a banner that really highlights the difference in experience of uh, women living in London. And bear in mind, this is a, an event that happened within very recent memory. It's not something that happened thousands of years ago. This is within the last three years in London. And the final, um, the final image that I wanted to show was of um, a sticker, and this is what will link it to this topic of, of submission. Um, there's a, a sticker on a lamppost on uh, the walk we take to nursery when we're dropping off Arwen and Leo, and it says, don't submit, end violence against women. Don't submit, end violence against women. Now, I've known that I was going to be speaking on this topic, this passage, uh, for a couple of months now, it feels like, and I've been walking past this sticker and I've been thinking... Um, you know, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to talk about this passage that instructs wives to submit to husbands. And here is um, a sticker that's saying to women, do the exact opposite of that. Do, don't submit. And so it's more important than ever, I think, to talk about what we mean as Christians when we talk about submission. What does submission mean? We need to talk about what it is and what it isn't. So... What does submission mean for Christians? Christian submission is following in the way of Christ first and foremost. And I don't think there's a better passage for understanding how uh, Christ submitted himself than uh, Philippians 2 um, verses 3 to 7, which I'll read now. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So this, I think, is a good um, summary of what we mean by submission as Christians. It's being like Christ in this respect. Um, he made himself nothing and took on the nature of a servant. He didn't look to his own interests, but he looked to the interests of others. He had humility and valued others above himself. So if we ever lose our way in terms of understanding submission, I think this is a good passage to come back to and say, this is what it's about. It's about being like Jesus. Second thing I want to say about submission is that we're all called to submit. And this is made clear in Ephesians 5, verse 21. 
submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's for everyone, men and women. And the third point I want to make is Christian submission is a gift. It's a gift. It's something that we give. If it's coerced or forced, then it's not a gift. Submission means willing, willingly coming under the authority of another. That's another uncomfortable word, the word authority, isn't it? But that's, that's the important thing here. It's a gift. Being unwillingly forced to do something is not submission. That's subjugation. That's being forced. You can't force someone to submit to you in the Christian sense. And at no point as we start to think about the dynamics between men and women, no point does the Bible instruct men to force their wives to submit, for example. Jesus taught his disciples that they should be servants of others just as he was. He contrasts this way of serving others with dominating or ruling others, saying, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man, that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So before moving on to considering the relationship between husband and wife, let's go back to Genesis 3, which is really where this relationship all went wrong. God says, um, sorry, here we find um, the consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God um, that we call sin. And for Eve, the consequence, consequences of Adam and her rebellion against God is that God says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire or longing will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So consider this, this pattern of husbands ruling over their wives here is part of the brokenness, part of the consequence of, ki of sin. We sometimes call this the curse. So like the pains of childbirth, it wasn't part of God's original intention for marriage. So husbands and, and men in general, we have an opportunity to be a blessing to the women in our lives, or we can be agents of this curse this brokenness, we can keep it going as it's gone on since sin first came into the world. I'll be speaking more to the husbands and men later on when we look at verse seven, but first Caroline's going to look at verses one to six. So let's go to verse one. It says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So Peter starts here by talking about by saying in the same way or likewise, meaning that wives should submit in the same way as Jesus submitted his life to others. Now, I don't know about you, but looking at kids is really, really um, been an eye opener in this kind of in the same way the way that children imitate their their parents or in general adults in general i mean what i find so funny is why is it that 
they're always imitating all the bad things. <laughs> Why is it that they're seeing what they're doing and their parents are doing and then they're copying the bad things? But anyway, I'm sure they're copying a lot of the good things too. But it's this kind of in the same way. So in the, in the same way and likewise, we are to imitate Christ. So how are we um, looking to Jesus and copying and doing exactly what he does? The reason that is given to is to win over husbands who might not be believers in the word. So in other words, husbands who do not believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, this if we're thinking about the context at the time, there were lots of people that were coming to faith at the time in the early church. And he's speaking to all the, a lot of the women who had become Christians while already being married to men who didn't believe. Um, and this was in, you know, in the context of a growing church as well. And um, this is definitely not a recommended strategy for eventually getting a Christian husband um, for women who are single. We've got passages like 2 Corinthians 6, which warns against Christians being unequally yoked or bound to unbelievers. But what this is, is saying is that there is a, it's possible and it's not a guarantee, but it's possible that unbelieving husbands may be won over by the purity and reverence of the wives' lives. It's how the wives are, are being salt and light to their husbands as well as the wider world. The word purity here means holy and completely uncontaminated, while reverence could be translated fear. And this is talking about a real healthy fear of the Lord, a deep reverence and respect for God. So this reverence for God is the reason why no wife should give unconditional obedience to her husband. As Peter himself says in Acts 5 um, verse 29, it says, we must obey God rather than men. Um, in the meaning of marriage book, Kathy Keller writes, wives should not obey or aid a husband in things that God forbids, such as selling drugs or physical abusing her. It is never kind or loving to anyone to make it easy for him or her to do wrong. So it's never really meant to be, um, to be used in the context of sin. In verse three, it says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So we live in an age and society where it's easy for us to become overly focused on our outward appearance. Um, the internet technology and social media are all very um, yeah, focused on the visual of what we look like on the outside. And even now, it's there's more and more options. I was finding even on Zoom, there's this kind of feature where you can kind of face tune your face so you look like you've got less wrinkles. And the other day, uh, a firm favourite amongst my cousins in, um, in Malaysia, they've got these AI photo apps which um, make people look younger. I was seeing my um, parents are out there at the moment and they um, were sending over photos of the family. And I was like, wow, dad, you look so much younger, realising that it was probably an AI face tune app that had been used in that. But this is often, you know, we often hear how um, what is happening on the outside with these personalities and whatever it might be is such a contrast to what's actually happening off camera, what's actually happening in the inner soul. And the, the, the Bible has a consistent message. God is not concerned with outward appearance. He is more concerned with the heart, the real soul of a person. 
When Samuel in the Old Testament is directed by God to visit Jesse to anoint one of his sons as king, he is convinced that Eliab, David's older brother, must be God's choice. And it says um, in 1 Samuel um, chapter 16, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I often find that this is a real um, battle that we have with the reality of, of what Christian life is. There's things that look, what things look like on the outside. So even at the time they were talking about, you know, being a Christian in, in the early church, it didn't look like something that you really wanted. It, you know, people were being persecuted. People were suffering for their faith. But the fact is that there, there was this ability to have this inner life this place where Peter speaks of the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And this is often the case with the re reality of the Christian life, where the external looks very different to the inner life. So as we were talking about, uh, you know, the situation that the, um, the early church was facing at the time didn't look altogether powerful. It was, you know, subject to a lot of critique and persecution. In 2 Corinthians, it says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So both are true, the, the, that external and internal are both true at the same time and look very different. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And this verse really speaks of the fact that, you know, outwardly our bodies are wasting away. So, but the things that are of value are the things of the soul, of the things that are in inner self, part of our inner self. Peter speaks of the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So we can often have our own stereotypes of what we perceive as people that have a gentle and quiet spirit. But the word gentle in the New Testament really means strength under control. We do not really have a good word for that in English. It does not mean weakness or being an effective wet blanket or a walkover. It means exercising your strength under control. And the word quiet here is not talking about being physically quiet. It's talking about an inner quietness and calm. It's possible to have this quietness of spirit while being externally loud, vibrant and outgoing. And it's also possible to be quiet and passively aggressive without having a quiet spirit. So this quietness comes from the relationship with God, from knowing him and trusting him in every circumstance. In quietness and trust is your strength, says Isaiah in chapter 30. In Psalm 131 it says, but I have calmed and quietened myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Having quietness like this is the opposite of being turbulent inside, having a storm of churning anxiety. And just as Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, he can bring calm to our heart and our soul, to the core, the very core of our being. So gentleness, strength under control, and quietness of heart, this is where true beauty lies. Peter says that it is these qualities that are of great worth in God's sight. 
Before we move on, it's worth saying that this is not a piece of law saying that women shouldn't wear beautiful clothes or express themselves through fashion or never have fancy hairdos or wear jewellery. It is simply saying that true and enduring beauty does not come from those things. And it's a question of priorities, certainly all of us. Both men and women should be spending more time, energy and resources on developing our Christ-like character than we do on how we look to others. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to present ourselves well, but for our priorities as Christians, um, we should, it should prevent us from being too showy or wasteful when it comes to appearances. So a lot is said about like our beauty regimes or get ready with me regimes, but how is your inner beauty regime? What does your soul look like to God? It's definitely a challenge and one to think about through the week. So we're now going to look at verses five and six as we look at the example of Sarah. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now, I know that when we were talking about this, it was often a bit of a confusing one of, of looking at Sarah's life. But I think part of this is also what we were talking about pre in previous weeks of the fact that actually um, this is actually linking um, the church, God's people that were made up of Jews and Gentiles back to the Old Testament, back to, um, you know, the God of Abraham and, and the family of Abraham and Sarah. So Sarah here is held up by Peter as an example of a woman who developed this inner beauty and displayed Christ-like submission in her relationship to her husband Abraham. Now if you've read the account of the lives of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis then you'll understand they were definitely far from perfect and a lot of what they did wouldn't be recommended behaviour. When Sarah hears God's promises that she's going to give birth to a son despite being long past childbearing age she laughs with scepticism and even lies to God's messenger about laughing. But despite her doubts, she submits to both God and Abraham. And when Isaac is born, the laughter of cynicism is replaced with the laughter of joy. Sarah is not afraid to stand up to Abraham, ins insisting that Hagar and Ishmael leave the household after Hagar's son behaves badly at a feast held to honour Isaac. It says, Sarah said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now, clearly for Sarah, submitting to Abraham included assertively expressing what she believed was right at times. And God backs Sarah's position while also providing for Hagar and Ishmael in the desert after they leave. And when Sarah dies, it is clear from Abraham's grief the deep love and respect he had for his wife. So back in 1 Peter, wives are called to follow the example of Sarah in two simple ways. Firstly, to do what is right. And secondly, to not give way to fear, to be fearless. And this implies that we do have a choice when we're faced with frightening situations. We can give way to our fear or we can refuse to give way to it. As with gentleness and quietness, it takes a close relationship with an all-powerful and perfectly loving God to drive out our fears and make us courageous. Okay, so verse 7 says... 
Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, uh, we've decided to use uh, the ESV, the English Standard Version, for this uh, verse um, for a reason. And that starts with this phrase um, in the middle that uh, the ESV translates weaker vessel. So the, um, this is compared with what the NAV translates it as, which is weaker partner. So the word here is definitely vessel. It's the same word that is used, for example, in the famous uh, 2 Corinthians 4 passage on treasure in jars of clay. Um, the word is jar or um, container. So before you're thinking as women, this isn't really sounding any better because it makes me sound like Tupperware. The point being made here is that the, 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 the body, the physical body, is the vessel of the spirit or soul. The, the, as, as Caroline was saying, the physical part of us is wasting away, but what's within us is eternal. So in this context here, we're talking about the physical body. And therefore, when we're talking about weaker, it's, to, it's confined to physical strength only. Now, we know from science that men's body on average do produce more testosterone, which enables them on average to produce, develop more muscle mass which means on average they're stronger at carrying shopping home um, or bench pressing weights in the gym. However, we know now also through scientific research that women have certain physical strengths that men don't have. They have a slower rate of muscle fatigue um, when performing intense tasks and a higher threshold for pain. But the important point here is that this verse is not saying that women are categorically weaker. That's why I think that um, the NIV translation weaker partner is so bad, because it makes it seem like women are categorically weaker. And that is not the point being made here. It's saying that women are only weak in this narrow sense of muscular strength. And considering the passage as a whole, how would any husband be won over by a wife who is entirely weaker in every aspect? The passage opens talking about how uh, wives can uh, potentially win over their husbands through the strength of character, their purity, their reverence. It also, the passage as a whole, talks about how women have the capacity to be fearless. This gentleness, which Caroline was saying, is strength under control. So we definitely see here, considering all these things, that husbands, wives, men and women have different strengths. Another key word in the passage is the phrase heirs with you, which is literally co-heirs. This communicates the complete equality of husband and wives in terms of their receiving of the gospel. It talks about the grace of life. This equality between uh, men and women, uh, between husband and wife, is something that has been, is the consistent message of the Bible from Genesis 1 onwards. Genesis 1 says, God created mankind in his own image. Uh, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And the equality between men and women is also affirmed in the New Testament. Galatians 3 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. This isn't saying 
that uh, men and women are the same. They have different strengths and weaknesses, but they are equal. Different and equal. Our passage today agrees with the whole of Scripture that men and women are equal but different, with different strengths and weaknesses. This is important because it's pretty hard to honour someone who you see as somehow lesser than yourself. Having set this in context, let's look back at verse 7. There are really two instructions given here to the husbands. The first is to live with their wives in an understanding way or to be considerate. The second is to honour their wives and to treat them as precious. Some translations translate that phrase respect, but it's really not strong enough. In chapter two, it's the same word that is um, translated pressure, precious, relates to this word honour. So to honour our wives and to treat them as precious. And this verse also has one consequence for disobedience. That the prayers of the husbands will be hindered. Literally, the phrase means blocked. So let's take each of these elements in turn. So firstly, it instructs husbands to be considerate, thoughtful, and to live with understanding um, towards the wife. In the past, as a husband, I have attempted to use defences such as I didn't think, I didn't realise, I didn't notice. I didn't know that. But here's the thing. These are not really good defences. Not before your wife and not before God. God cares about how we treat one another very deeply. There are sins of commission, but there are also sins of omission. There's things we should have done, but we didn't do. Maybe we didn't do them because we didn't think, because we didn't have understanding. So the sin itself in question here is being inconsiderate, unthinking and thoughtless, I might say insensitive towards your wife. Personally, I find this quite sobering. I still have a lot to learn in this area. Um, perhaps it might be a good exercise for you to just talk things through with your wife and, th and ask her if you're married, this is. Um, and ask her all the things she's thinking about or has on her mind at the moment. If you're anything like Caroline and I, your wife list could be considerably longer um, than mine is and include things that are completely not on your radar. And even if you're an unmarried man, perhaps you might consider how you might be guilty of being inconsiderate towards women at times. Peter writes, live with your wife in an understanding way. Much is often said about how hard it is for men to understand women and women to understand men, but we can't give up trying. This verse indicates to husbands, understanding their wives is not only possible, but is essential if we are to live out marriage as God intends it to be. The second instruction is to honour um, your wife and treat her as precious. The word honour here relates to precious, as I've said. God should have the number one position in our lives. But for husbands, their wives should be the next most honoured person, the next most precious. It is, of course, sadly possible, even common, to treat other people or things in our lives as more precious than our spouse. We can be busy with work, distracted in other ways. Even children, though a wonderful blessing, can cause us to forget our responsibility as husbands to honour and value our wives as precious. 
What does honour look like in practice? Well, that depends on the understanding and consideration of the first point. The two things work together, understanding and honour. In a similar passage to this one in Ephesians, men are called to give themselves up or lay down their lives for their wives in the same way that Christ lays down his life, gives himself up for the church. Husbands, are we there yet? Have we given ourselves up? Or are we clinging on to our time, our energy, our preferences, our convenience, our pride? Peter indicates that if men fail to be understanding and honouring towards their wives, then their prayers will be hindered, literally blocked. I think there's two senses in which this is true. The first is that the Bible indicates in a number of places that although God always hears the prayers of the sincerely repentant person who cries out for mercy, he refuses to listen to the prayers of a stubbornly unrepentant person. The second is more practical. If a husband doesn't have a good understanding and communication with his wife, he's unlikely to be praying for the things she most needs at the time. Either way, this warning is intended to encourage husbands to love and honour their wives as they should, rather than to discourage them from praying. We need God's help to be the men he wants us to be, whether we are married or not. And we need to keep praying for the help of the Holy Spirit as we work on our faults. There's another point I want to make here. As husbands, I think that the consideration and honour we give to our wives must be related to the consideration and honour we give to women in general. It's hard to imagine how a man can be considerate and honouring towards his wife while being inconsiderate and dishonouring towards women in general. For husbands and men, the true test of our attitude towards women and our wives is how we talk and behave when there are no women around to hold us to account. As Christian men, let's be sure that we speak and act in a way that is considerate and honouring towards women, even when there are no women around. We have to be very careful not to in any way propagate or endorse bad attitudes towards women when we're in all male environments. Finally, I want to go a little bit deeper and consider why as men we might find it difficult to be considerate and honouring towards our wives. And beyond that, why do we as men often end up being inconsiderate and disrespectful towards women? I'm going to share some of the ideas that are shared in the book The Silence of Adam by Larry Crabb, which has actually been updated now to be called Men of Courage. Larry Crabb um, writes that uh, there are two extremes, two traps that men can fall into. And that is to be ruled by toughness or to be ruled by neediness. So men who are ruled by toughness are men who need only themselves. And men who are ruled by neediness are men who demand others come through for them. And rather than fall into these traps or these extremes, we need to seek to be Christ-like men. Men who balance Christ-like strength and Christ-like sensitivity. Men who are ruled by toughness chase after goals that do not require meaningful intimacy. They deny their longing for deep relationship. They prefer shallow stability. They're insensitive to their impact on other people and they can be 
hard-hearted, distant and emotionally blunted. Men who are ruled by neediness can enter into relationships solely to meet their own needs, be thirsty for affirmation, self-pitying. They can become angry and resentful when their needs are not met and they find no fault in themselves. And Crabbe says that men at both of these extremes are likely to become controlling, destructive and selfish towards others in different ways, knowingly or unknowingly, while inwardly they likely feel some combination of powerless, angry and or terrified. For us men, the antidote to overemphasising our toughness or our neediness is instead to combine Christ-like strength and Christ-like sensitivity. In our society, in our world, strength and sensitivity can seem like opposites. But Jesus combined them both. He lived them both out perfectly and provides the best example, the best role model. I'm going to read this quote in its entirety um, from the book. It's talking about Jesus. Only one man in history got it right. He was richly aware of all that he longed for, and that awareness brought with it pain and hope. Sorrow over what was, and joy over what he knew would one day be. He felt his disappointment, but no more keenly than that, he felt his anticipation. He wept freely over lost relationship and over the cost of recovering it. He was deeply aware of all that went on around him and inside him. But his sensitivity never led to self-preoccupation or complaint, rather than merely feeling the hurt of broken relationships in ways deeper than any of us could imagine. He used that hurt to more sharply define and energise his call. He was delighted to sacrifice every pleasure, both legitimate joys he had known throughout a past eternity and illegitimate satisfactions that were his for the taking, for the single purpose of letting people see what his father was really like. For him, nothing mattered more than revealing God as he was and is, an inflexible hater of sin and a relentless lover of people. By defining himself in terms of his call rather than by his longings or power, he found the courage to do whatever his call required. He exemplified pure manhood by moving into regions that he'd never before entered. Compare his pre-existence with God before Bethlehem to the darkness of Calvary. And he stayed perfectly on course, never slipping an inch, despite tests of unparalleled severity, perfectly sensitive yet unconquerably strong. Humbly dependent, yet resolutely determined, aware of every nuance in every relationship, but unmovably centred in his primary relationship with God the Father. Men, don't you want to be a man like that? The world needs men like Jesus. When we are thinking about the type of men we aspire to be, let's not settle for less than Christ Jesus. There's no better role model for us as men or as husbands. So as we've come to the end of this talk, there's quite a lot to take in here. There might be some things in here that um, have encouraged you, hopefully, but also that have challenged us all. Let's just close by just taking a moment and I'll say a prayer.
So Father God, we just want to thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the way that you have spoken to your church from the early days through to us here today. And Father, for all the areas of how we're wrestling with how we are to live in light of the gospel, in light of our identity in Christ, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do this. We pray that you would help us to do this as wives, as husbands, and as a body in Christ together. Father, I pray for our marriages in our church as well. I pray that they would be those that would be a reflection of God's love for his church. And I pray for us all as the bride of Christ. I pray that we would live lives that live out our identity, our new creation lives in light of the amazing work that you have done. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.